Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. We're here today on New Books in Eastern European Studies and New Books in European Studies. And my guest today is Stella Gerbos. Uh, I'm Stephen Siegel, and my guest is Stella Gerbos. Her book is called Conquering Peace from the Enlightenment to the European Union, out with Harvard University Press, um, just released um, in the United States. It's her third monograph, and it will be coming out at the end of April in the UK and Europe. Thank you, Stella, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for your kind invitation. So uh, a little bit about Professor Gervas. Uh, Stella Gervas is professor of Russian history at Newcastle University in the UK and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. She is also an associate of the history department at Harvard University, and visiting professor at Harvard Summer School since 2015. Her main interests are in the intellectual and international history of modern Europe, with special reference to the history of peace and peacemaking, what we'll talk about today, and in Russia's intellectual and maritime history. Uh, Stella's most recent book before this one is called A Cultural History of Peace in the Age of Enlightenment, with David Armitage, published in 2020. Um, so I'll get right to my questions today, uh, if you don't mind, Stella. And, and I, I want to begin with this um, really wonderful book and, and what perhaps motivated you to write a history of peace. So thank you very much for your kind introduction, Stephen. So the story behind Conquering Peace is both personal and academic. As often, uh, when we do an ex post introspection on the origins of a book, several things are intertwined. So the origins of my research on peace in Europe are double or even triple. So the first I would like to mention, it's uh, it was a tribute to my Genevan or Swiss identity, Geneva with its long tradition on peace and, of course, the home of the League of Nations and international organizations. The second reason, it was related to my previous research. So as historians do very often, they are connecting their, mm-hmm. their books and their publications. So, uh, And that is related to my previous re- research uh, on um, the post-Napoleonic Europe and on the new international order after the Congress of Vienna. So I had published an early book uh, in French um, um, uh, titled Reinventer la Tradition. So you mentioned already the English translation. But um, the main point is is, uh, that it explored the intellectual climate and political conceptions in Europe during the Napoleonic and post-Napoleonic era through the eyes of an East European intellectual, um, Alexander Sturza, who was a diplomat and writer in the service of Tsar Alexander I. So on uh, one of these questions of that research was on how rulers and diplomats reestablished the European order at the Congress of Vienna and how they made peace after a long period of wars in Europe. So as often happens, I wanted to explore further and to mm-hmm. extend to extend my research in space and in time to cover more than three centuries of uh, history of peace in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but perhaps my interest when I am thinking about this um, in, in this topic goes much farther than that. I grew up in the former Soviet Union and um, as a child uh, of perestroika, I embraced early Gorbachev's idea of uh, mm-hmm. 
common European home. So after all those years of Cold War, this left for sure an uh, indelible mark. Right, right. Yeah. And and I, I wonder um, if you could talk about maybe the big idea. I think Gorbachev is certainly a, a major figure in your book and, and back to others in the European um, tradition. Um, so, you know, you say at many points in the book that when we're talking about Europe, it's much more than just about the Holy Alliance or the League of Nations or the European Union. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what is the what is your big argument if you have mm-hmm. a main argument about peace and Europe in the book? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, let me tell you a few general words about the scope of the book. Um, so Conquering Peace it's a, is a historical fresco about peace and peacemaking over the last three centuries in Europe, uh, from the Atlantic to the Ural Mountains, and from Cape North to the Strait of Sicily. And this perspective I call enlarged Europe in space and time. So I include the so-called Central and Eastern Europe and also Russia in this big picture of uh, uh, European history. So one of the main uh, um, arguments of the book is uh, peace, what I call peace is for the strong and war is for the weak. Um, And there are several ways to look at it. Uh, Those who made peace after the continental wars in Europe were the victorious powers. And conversely, the empires who made wars of conquests, like the Napoleonic Empire, the German Empire, the Third Reich, the Soviet Union, all had some serious weaknesses. So Germany, for example, in order to lacked natural resources, notably oil. The Soviet Union had an economic system that was simply inferior to the West. They had to occupy other countries. So to make up, they had to occupy, they occupy, they, they led um, a policy, a foreign policy of conquest. Um, if you want to make peace and to be able of making peace, you have to be in a position of strength. So the reason that's the reason why, for example, Tsar Alexander the uh, First could mm-hmm. back down during the Polish-Saxon crisis of eighteen fourteen and fifteen, uh, and was that because he had the most powerful army at the time, and he had destroyed Napoleon's great. Uh, army. So he didn't have to prove that he was strong. He was. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and I, I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of the design of the book, you have mm. five, five chapters, um, and it seems each one is, is named after a, a spirit or, or esprit, right, in, in mm-hmm. French. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you you begin really interestingly with the Treaty of Utrecht after the War of Spanish Succession instead mm-hmm. of let's say Westphalia for for a lot of mm-hmm. you know, realist thinkers and political scientists in the world of the European state system and international affairs. So how do you you know how did you decide to do that from let's say 1713 and and then. You know, what are your spirits in, in each of these chapters? Yeah, you know, like in spirits, I use yeah. So, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, uh, usually history books about Europe focus on major events. That is wars. And of course, we can say this is legitimate. Uh, Europe had a violent past. Order one and order two started there, of course, and and more recently there was a war in former Yugoslavia. Um, so war stories are always full of dramatic development, so they attract also certain interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this book uh, presents a different kind of history. Um, it's a story in counterpoint. I decided to focus on periods of peace after Great War, after an empire has been trying to conquer all of Europe and failed 
miserably. So instead of considering the moments of maximum commotion, I consider that our milestones should be moments of relative calm, peace. Uh, but that's not as boring. I can reassure you that it's not as boring as it seems. You know, actually, peace negotiations are thriller stories. So for my book, to, to go back to your question on spirits, so for, for my book, I take five episodes, what I call spirits. Uh, the word is not new. It comes from the French esprit, as an esprit de corps. And I use this word in a special collective meaning, as uh, in the spirit of the Enlightenment, for a group of individuals, political leaders, diplomats, who come together to create a new reality. It is a social phenomenon that brings forward a certain idea or ideal. And indeed, each spirit fosters new experiments, what I call the engineering of peace. They all occurred after Great Continental War and after Europe had escaped the menace of a pan-continental empire or a universal monarchy, uh, to use the terms of the 18th century. So the first is the bid of Louis XIV for European hegemony in the early 18th century. The second, after Napoleon and the French Empire, one century later, then we have uh, the German empires in World War One and World War Two. And finally, the Soviet hegemony over half of Europe during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if, if you could introduce to our audience some of the main figures in the literature, not just on peace, but I guess what was called, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, perpetual peace. And, and I don't just mean Immanuel mm-hmm. Kant, mm-hmm. but <laughs> maybe some of the others from the mm-hmm. Enlightenment period mm-hmm. forward who, who contributed to many of the arguments that, that you cover. Yes, um, that's it's a very interesting question. And in fact, that it's a through line of my book because it introduces um, the plans of perpetual peace, the so-called plans of perpetual peace. Um, I should say that the continental world of Europe since Emperor Charles V, we can go back to the 16th century, was traditionally formed of two opposed blocks in Europe. So the first was led by the Habsburg family and with the two branches of Spain and Austria. And the second was led by the Bourbon family of France. If there were some borders conflicts between them, they used to go to war, you know, because war was considered as a means for solving disagreements mm-hmm. between exactly. two states. Exactly. So that was part. But at the beginning of the 18th century, uh, because of some dynastic issues between the France of Louis XIV, uh, the, uh, um, the Sun King, and uh, Spain, this traditional world based on these two dynastic families was broken. So the European states went to war uh, once again, the so-called war of the Spanish succession. The peace of Utrecht ends this war of the Spanish succession in 1713. In, in those days, there are a number of writers and statesmen, uh, statesmen in Europe, particularly in England, who are thinking hard about the situation and they work with the concept that they call the balance of power uh, as an alternative to this risk of a new pan-continental empire in terms of the 18th century of universal monarchy. So it meant in practice that um, uh, a king, for example, like Louis XIV, could not uh, bequeath his lands as he wanted if there was a danger of creating um, a universal monarchy. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. principle of the balance of power was introduced in the peace of Utrecht, literally, but there is a disagreement with the French. So the French writer and diplomat, uh, Abbé de Saint-Pierre, argued that the balance of power wasn't a solution. 
he called it an armed truce. So mm-hmm. he wrote a plan of perpetual peace and he proposed the League of European States. So he said the princes or the monarchs would have to display their quarrels in front of a court. War could be used, but only as a last resort, as a police instrument against offenders. Mm-hmm. And he called this the system of peace, a real, a true system of peace, by contrast with the English um, political principle of the balance of power as a system of war. Mm-hmm. So, in summary, St. Pierre yeah, sought yeah. to turn the European states into a civilized society, if you wish. But you are right to say that St. Pierre uh, um, was at the origins of this of a string or of a, of a literary genre of plans of perpetual peace. There was, we can also cite, of course, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Mm-hmm. Kant and many others. So I collected more than 100 plans of perpetual peace written between the early 18th century and the end of the 19th century. So it was a, kind of like a new piece of literature. Um, and so that was uh, this European law of peacemaking. It's a real European yeah, yeah. law of peacemaking here. Yeah. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really interested, Stella, and people have to read your book to, to cover all of these thinkers from, you know, Quakers like William Penn mm-hmm. to, to um, Rousseau with his quarrels against Voltaire or Voltaire with his quarrels against him. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many interesting examples that, that you introduce from this, as you call it, the anti-war spirit of the Enlightenment. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued in, in how you treat Napoleon and the Holy Alliance. And I wonder <laughs> if you might be able to talk about the threat that, that Napoleon presents to the spirit of Utrecht and, and how he, um, let's say, resurrects the Roman Empire or the Pax Romana. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, mm-hmm. after that point, when you have Alexander the First at the Holy at the Holy Alliance or at the Vienna Congress system proposing mm-hmm. the Holy Alliance, how do you understand the the Vienna Congress system in in light of your larger argument about peace? Yes, that's it's an excellent question, but also a complex uh, history behind. So that it's um, um, in particular that the second moment in my timeline, timeline long uh, time history of peace in Europe. So the second moment is this Vienna settlement and the Congress system after the fall of Napoleon in 1815, uh, and this created what I call the spirit of Vienna. Um, in Vienna, uh, there are four allied powers which defeated Napoleon, Austria, Britain, Prussia, and Russia. And we tend to assume that they were closely allied, which is true because they really worked as one in 1814-15 uh, and uh, confirmed their commitment to pursue together the war against Napoleon to the end. Um, Napoleon, um, I like your, uh, this comparison you make between the Napoleonic Empire and the Pax Romana. So indeed, that was uh, what I call in the book the hegemonic peace. So this strong idea that a benevolent ruler uh, could keep peace between the states and between the European empires. So, in fact, Napoleon is representing uh, this hegemonic peace because it's a peace maintained uh, by the arms with weapons. So that's it's an again that it's a precisely what uh, Saint Pierre criticized as an armed truce. He was saying that will never right. bring peace to Europe. So. Right. In Vienna, we have uh, a different so situation. So during the Congress of Vienna in 1814-15, uh, the statesmen and diplomats, uh, Tsar Alexander I of Russia, of course, but also Metternich, uh, Castlereagh for Britain, um, uh, Hardenberg for Prussia. So 
they are all of them, they are men of the late enlightenment. For example, Tsar Alexander I was actually inspired by the plan of perpetual peace of Abbé de Saint-Pierre, though he did not follow him blindly. Um, Metternich was a student of, of Immanuel Kant and was presumably influenced by um, uh, Kant's uh, essay on perpetual peace. Uh, so we have some historians, of course, the most of the Congress of Vienna, the most famous, of course, is Kissinger. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll uh, not talk about him. <laughs> yes, but you know, he stated that Metternich returned to the principle of the balance of power. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I call it's, so it's for me. It's uh, I am. You know, I am thinking more about another, introduce another principle in the book, which is much closer to what I call the balance of diplomacy. It's a mm-hmm. plurilateral or multilateral cooperation among great powers with a precise goal to reestablish right. peace and to maintain peace on the mm-hmm. continent. And, and actually, you know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned Kissinger because of all, all of his, you know, o- overblown focus on Metternich. It, it's a classic work that, that every diplomatic historian yeah, has to read. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I think you, I mean, you point out quite rightly that there was, you know, almost a monopoly during the Cold War of the realist school of thought. And mm-hmm. um, I, I like how you spotlight other people like, you know, Alexander I, um, as mm-hmm. well as Mazzini, I wonder if you might say a word about him, um, because there seems to be a, a couple of you know levels to this peacemaking process. One mm-hmm. would be on the level of monarchs, and here mm-hmm. Alexander mm-hmm. is you know Alexander is representing Russia and representing himself, and then mm-hmm. you have this push in the 19th century toward republicanism. So. You know, how, how do you understand the disruptions, let's say, after 1815 through, mm. through the long, through the long um, really through the, through the rest of the 19th century, but up mm. until World War I? Yes. Um, Tsar Alexander I um, proposed the quite original treaty in 1815, what was called the Treaty of the Holy Alliance. So he came with this treaty, he proposed to his partners. Um, and I would say it was a very different kind of a treaty because it was not just to make peace, but it was a treaty to keep the peace. So it was a short and unusual document with religious overtones. Mm-hmm. And it puts a metaphor of European family into the political sphere. Uh, Alexander I had two intellectual dimensions, and here I will make my connection with Mazzini, we can make a connection with Mazzini, is that uh, the first I already mentioned that uh, he was clearly you know, um, uh, a spirit of the, he was a man of the late enlightenment. But the second was a projection of, of that into mysticism. So it's very yes. important for the listeners um, that the listeners understand that there are two kind of branches also of this late enlightenment. So we have, of course, this movement of idea which moved away from the sacred, from everything was sacred, you know, to what you call usually the secularization mm-hmm. of uh, political thought. But on the other hand, we have also a kind of mysticism, which was a contrary move closer to it through personal gnosis. And these two sides coexisted, of ideas coexisted and were two sides of the same coin. So, in fact, it's naive to think that um, um, uh, those two movements were opposed to each other because both were a threat to the established Christian churches. Uh, so Alexander I, with his Holy Alliance, spoke of a European Christian family united. It's a complicated subject, but it's enough to say that this Holy Alliance destroys the political role of the Pope in European politics. Mm-hmm. And 
These holy lines had very interesting consequences and it remained a reference even for the revolutionaries of uh, 1848, uh, for the Italian Giuseppe Mazzini, of course, who was an Italian patriot and who came with this very interesting idea of young Europe. So he was thinking about the Europeans as a big European family. So that's kind of, it's very interrelated to this idea of, um, of uh, Europe, Christian European family of, of the Tsar, Alexander I. Mazzini called it um, a holy alliance of peoples. When, uh, of course, the treaty of the holy alliance of, of um, Alexander I was a, treat, uh, a holy alliance of monarchs first, the Europe of monarchies. Right. And also we can mention, of course, uh, Victor Hugo. It's also very interesting, but that because at the Congress of Peace, for example, in Paris in 1849, he proclaimed that the law of the world could not be distinct from the law of God. So it's a very interesting, complex idea here between the um, religion and, uh, and politics. Yeah. And uh, so that it's a quite uh, an original moment in and, and uh, I, European political thought. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I wonder, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I wonder if, if we might turn to um, this idea of the League of Nations, too, because, you know, um, you mentioned, and again, people have to read through your chapters because we can't possibly <laughs> cover all of it. But, you know, you've got the, the Hague Conference, for example, in, in 1899. And these mm-hmm. are really important, mm-hmm. you know, counterpoints, as you say, to the new imperialism and, and world of colonial empires and balance of power. But, you know, my question is, is about um, how you connect the threads um, from mm. Utrecht to Vienna to the Paris peace conference, or at least to Woodrow Wilson, um, it, it seems, and, and, and maybe, again, correct me if I'm wrong, Wilson is, is not only a devout Christian, but he's also an admirer of Mazzini um, and, and mm-hmm. thinks that he can rest this liberal republicanism um, on religious foundations in, in a certain mm. kind of internationalist way, or, or maybe in, in a way which would um, promise a new a new community or a new world of peace negotiation. I wonder if you might say say a word about that in this mm. new world, at least that Wilson imagines after World War One. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so you you mentioned uh, indeed uh, these links I am or I am making or I am trying to bridge between uh, the spirit of the Enlightenment of the 18th century, then what I call the spirit of Vienna um, of the 19th century, and later the spirit of Geneva with the League of Nations. Um, so uh, all these key moments are attempts of European states to reestablish peace after a great war in Europe, but also to think about political and diplomatic tools uh, in order to maintain peace in Europe. Immanuel Kant stated that peace is, is not natural or it's not naturally granted, that peace has to be established. Peace has to be instituted. And for that, we need um, uh, a law, we need institutions. So after the Congress of Vienna so um, and um, the so-called Concert of Europe of the 19th century, um, uh, uh, those, uh, at the Congress, at the, so the situation changed um, in the second half of the 19th century and um, the situation that emerged from the Crimean War in 1856 was very unhealthy and paradoxical because the great powers um, were back to their former logic of the balance of power. Mm-hmm. A system of war in terms of the philosophers of the 18th century. And I would go farther than that. Uh, the balance of power is a tool of war. Uh, 
So if states are in a state of peace and they get into a logic of the balance of power, the probability that a conflict will result sooner or later is almost 100%. Uh, and the reason is obvious because the balance of power prompted an arms race in um, the late 19th century. So I would say that... Um, yeah, that's a good point. 19th, yeah, so sorry, in, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead, please. Sorry to interrupt so you. I would say that in uh, 1914... Um, the whole of Europe was already way beyond the line. And uh, if had not been the assassination, just the assassination of, um, of uh, Archduke uh, Ferdinand in Sarajevo, it would have been something. With our horizon of experience, we could think that the peace could have been saved in, in 1900 or 1905, with the Hague Peace Conferences. But after that, it's hard to say. By 1914, uh, we had become, war had become inevitable. It was kind of a mechanical phenomenon. um, And there was nothing that diplomats could go to paddle back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, that's always the accusation that a lot of, you know, sort of historians of war or realist minded historians mm-hmm. charge that this is, you know, a pipe dream. Even Voltaire said this to Rousseau and so forth. Right. Yes. Um, but, you know, what, what we're talking about and, and maybe here we can turn to the role of, of Russia and the Soviet Union and eventually Gorbachev is that larger spirit in the latter part of your book. Um, from from Geneva in the 1920s and Locarno mm-hmm. through um, the Franco-German reconciliation project mm. of the 50s and and beyond, I'm really intrigued by how you connect peace to collective security in this multilateral history. We we just you know in the United States especially don't see a lot of multilateralist histories, mm. and mm-hmm. I wonder if if you could say a few words about this um, legacy of the Geneva spirit, what, what it is, and, and then, of mm. course, what it means um, for, for Russia and the Soviet Union through the 20th century. So it's very interesting that you are mentioning the realists, especially seen from the American side, of course, uh, um, this realistic vision on uh, uh, interstate uh, uh, relations in Europe. Uh, Paradoxically, I would say it's Kissinger and Morgenthau are the naive ones here. Uh, they want to see things, for example, in the Hague conferences that, uh, or in the Versailles treaties that are not really there. Um, the case of the Berlin conference, you know, of 1878 is very clear one where in front of the rise of German imperialism and uh, Bismarck, um, the Berlin Conference is a complete negation of the European tradition of peace. So it's a purely imperial, you know, hard power, cynical and colonial thing also. Mm-hmm. And um, so even at the time, it was obvious that there was not a shred of morality in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the peace uh, process which um, resumed after the World War One and um, the Treaty of Versailles, and also I should mention the, uh, the Treaty of Locarno of 1925. Um, so they was uh, followed the same um, um, string of uh, ideas uh, that the establishment of a, jurisdi- of a jurisdiction for the resolution of internal disputes, it will necessarily happen with the multilateral cooperation among uh, European states. And that was called peace through law. It's not everything, of course, you can solve everything. You cannot solve everything with courts, but that it's a very important political principle that appeared um, in the um, aftermath of World War I. At the time, it was called the machinery of peace. Mm -hmm. 
So mm -hmm. the idea was that we need to establish institutions and organizations. And the League of Nations, it's just a consequence of this spirit um, of peacemaking um, in uh, Europe after a new great war. Mm -hmm. And and where is the Soviet Union in in this scenario? That, I mean, this is not just an American question, but mm -hmm. you you talk you have a very interesting section about Gorbachev and and even before in in talking about mm -hmm. Gromyko, um, mm -hmm. and the United Nations. So you know, does the collective security idea from the Soviet angle fall apart? After after Yalta or after 1945, I mean, what mm. what what happens to this? Because obviously, you know, there's another European story, as you mentioned, which which we could talk about as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, what we need really to understand is that all these political leaders, and um, I mentioned and I discuss in the book that we can add to Gorbachev, of course, Wilson, but also then the so-called founding fathers of the European communities in the 1950s with Schumann, Monet. So all these political leaders were first war leaders before becoming peace leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, so Wilson led the U.S. to victory in 1918. Schumann and Monet participated to the war effort against Germany in World War II. So that was big time. Gorbachev right. was a man of the Soviet regime, so of the Cold War. So he fought uh, the Cold War against uh, the U.S., the two blocs. So, um, and the same goes with Alexander I., but the reason uh, why they reconnected with Saint-Pierre, it's because they came from the same place. A long and costly war, which they all thought should have been avoided. And, and since they could not repair the harm that had been done, they at least tried to prevent the harm in the future. So that's all. But this question about Yalta, of course, and uh, the Treaty of uh, Yalta in 1945, um, and, um, um, and I would say the role of the Soviet Union in this vis-a-vis um, -vis of uh, United Nations, in the process of peacemaking. So um, historians have debated on what happened really, for example, in Stalin's mind at Yalta or in Roosevelt's mind. But one thing is sure, his, uh, the idea, his idea was that he, uh, he would contribute to the cause of what be a peace. For example, Roosevelt thought that by inviting Stalin's Soviet Union, that and uh, uh, that will contribute to this multilateral cooperation uh, to the cause of peace. So, um, and Roosevelt invited the Soviet Union to sit uh, at the Security Council. Mm, and in right. some ways, that was an entirely delusional. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that Truman was smart enough to understand that uh, this immediately. He was tying the hands of the U.S. foreign policy in some ways. And uh, I know that books, of course, um, there are many books upon books uh, have been written on this principle of security, of securitanism uh, as um, a way to justify the inclusion of the Soviet Union in the UN Security Council uh, for obvious political reasons. But I think that's not really history. It's also an ideological justification mm -hmm. uh, about that. Mm -hmm. And and I guess you know toward the end of your book, um, if we can you know sort of move to the concluding points and enlargement or the, what you call in chapter five the spirit of enlarged Europe. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. how do you Stella understand this um, enlargement process and and the official narratives since 1989, but especially since Maastricht and now up to Brexit. Um, how is the spirit of, of Geneva or let's say the spirit of, of, of Europe alive? Mm -hmm. Is it a political idea, a geographic idea? Um, how does mm -hmm. it apply to your larger story of, of peace and reconciliation 
um, in, you know, in an age that has turned toward ethno-nationalism and illiberalism mm. and, and war. Mm-hmm. So, indeed, uh, the fifth and last chapter of my book covers a spirit which is quite different from the others uh, because it's uh, not directly inspired, perhaps, by the tradition of perpetu- perpetual peace, but it reconnects to it. Uh, what we have is all of Central and Eastern Europe of the famous lines that goes from Stettin on the Baltic Sea to Trieste on the Adriatic, you know, this region with, mm-hmm. which is actually was um, occupied by the Red Army with the exception of Yugoslavia and Albania. Um, and we have the governments of Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia where clearly puppet governments of the Soviet Union. So um, each of these nations has its, you know, its own situation of protest. There was, of course, uprisings um, during the Cold War in Budapest in 1956, Prague, 68, uh, Poland with, in the 1980s with the Solidarność. But these are national movements. And in 1989, what's really happening? So what really happened is that the economic situation is getting steadily worse, and we have perestroika, glasnost are happening, and Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet Union's premier, had made it clear that the traditional Soviet solution to protests, sending, for example, hundreds of tanks into the city center, was not going to be used. And to make a long story short, we have what I called the spirit of enlarged Europe. And I compare it to a metaphor of a flight of the monarch butterflies. <laughs> yes, so I remember suddenly, that. <laughs> suddenly you have millions of people going all together in the streets, mm-hmm. standing on top of the Berlin Wall and so on. And uh, this strong idea of Gorbachev that we are a common European home. So the idea that it's a really, it's a truly very strong idea because that was a, a way to reconnect with Alexander the first idea of a, of a European family, right? So he's making this strong idea of a common Euro- European home. So with the Eastern and Central Europeans, the Baltics and also the Russians part of this big um, painting of uh, history of peace and mm-hmm. peacemaking. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, and that it was a kind of um, in the important point in my work. And uh, uh, I really wanted to enlarge uh, also as a vision on Europe, because very often what we call um, uh, in the West European history, it's uh, it's basically about bilateral relationships between France and and Britain, for example, and mm-hmm. occasionally you can add Germany, and you completely omit we completely omit this eastern part of the continent. And, uh, and that was kind of um, and, uh, a way for me to, um, uh, to consider, so to enlarge this perspective of Europe, not only on, in time, but also in space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I wonder, you know, if you might begin um, for our audience here at New Books Network to talk about um, books that, that uh, people interested in the topic of um, peacemaking could could read um, maybe authors a, a few of them. I'm you know worried and, and wondering if the enlarged European spirit has died, uh, and and this is kind of my you know my anxiety, especially after after Brexit and after Britain leaving the EU. Um, you know, I think your point is really well taken that it's not simply enough to lurch from one crisis to the next. Um, like in the Vienna Congress system, or or just to talk about mm. security and securitization. So um, may, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and perhaps suggest some other works that people could read. 
Yes, that's uh, um, I I I am sorry, Stephen. I cannot reassure your anxiety about the. the <laughs> I wish someone the could. The current European <laughs> spirit, the current European spirit, and if he died after Brexit, so that's it's, what I'm uh, looking for reassurance. I, I am I'm really sorry. I don't have a crystal globe. I don't have a crystal globe, you know, to read the future. And as I said, peace is never granted. Future is not written, so historians try to study the past. But uh, to go back to your question about um, some um, books perhaps to recommend, uh, there have been, of course, many great history books published recently and also covered by you in uh, the New New Books Network interviews. Um, But uh, I wish to mention rather uh, two novels. Oh my, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, literature has always been my inspiration as a historian, uh, you know, with Tolstoy, War and Peace, because so that, uh, so that was a kind of a very important source for my um, um, book, my own research. Uh, so the first novel is uh, called The Peace Machine, and uh, is written by a Turkish writer and journalist, Ozgur Munku. I don't know if you know him, if you heard about I him. I haven't, I haven't. Uh-huh. So uh, he's a young uh, um, writer, uh, uh, young. It's He's, uh, I think, in our age, but we are forever young, you know. So, so, so he writes this peace machine that uh, a novel and translated into English uh, by Pushkin House. Uh, so it's a story, I would say, a la Jules Verne, because uh, at the dawns of the, dawns of, dawns of the 20th century, the world stands on the brink and of yet another bl- bloody war. And uh, the question was if conflict were not inevitable. So what if a machine could exploit discoveries of sciences, of engineering, uh, to influence people's minds. So, and uh, the main hero of this book, um, who is, um, uh, leads, who leads um, kind of his life as a writer of erotic fiction in Istanbul. And so he tried to imagine and to think about such a machine, a peace machine to prevent wars. But it's a very interesting story because mm. he, uh, this um, the main hero, uh, is taking the Orient Express. He's traveling mm. um, across Europe from Istanbul to Paris and Belgrade. It's ironic. Uh, it's funny, and uh, it uh, this novel asks. Uh, a great, a profound question, which is also the through line of uh, my own Conquering Peace uh, book on how to put an end to all wars. So, and just very briefly, I would mention perhaps a second novel by a French novelist and playwright, Laurent Godet, also recently translated into English with the title of Our Europe, Banquet of Nations. Okay. So um, it's uh, what I found very interesting in this um, um, uh, historical narrative uh, is that it's a novel in um, in verse. So it reminded I me very hear. much, of course, Eugene Onegin. Eugene Onegin. Eugene indeed. But it's a powerful poem about um, uh, Europe and what Europe do you want today? Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. That was a completely unexpected answer. I, I expected a lot of academic history, and I know you know the literature as many, well. There are too many academic histories. So it will take too long time to mention all of them. Yeah, and 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 thank you for that. So, um, you know, again, since we can't cover everything, I hope especially that mm-hmm. people will read um your chapters and and mentioning of popular culture. Um, as much as they they read about Schumann and Monet and you know sort of the, mm-hmm. the func- functionalist um, approach to to negotiation and negotiating the European Community, um, I'd like you if you can for our audience here at New Books if you could talk maybe about your current research or, or projects, what things you might be interested in working on um, right now. 
Um, so, as I am uh, recently working, or rather resuming, uh, an old project uh, on um, the history of the Black Sea. Um, so, it's a history of the Black Sea uh, from the late 18th century um, uh, to the early 20th century. So, it's a transnational history of the Black Sea from the first uh, Russian build up in that region to the fall of uh, three dynastic empires, Russian, uh, Austro-Hungarian, and Ottoman. And this work would be innovative in two ways, uh, through its geopolitical, geopolitical perspective, by considering that the development of the new Russia uh, as part of a greater uh, geopolitical plan that provided meaning to it. And it's also a timely story because, you know, it's a hot news. We see what is happening in um, around the Black Sea and particularly close to Crimea nowadays. Yeah. Uh, but also, so I will also, it's also a transnational perspective. I will definitely take a transnational perspective because the Black Sea, so usually... It's, a it's very much a flashpoint of conflicts, of European conflicts. So I would like to consider that, to consider the local communities around the Black Sea as ever-evolving entities between Europe and Asia instead of alleged timelessly pure nations, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that this work will also combine with a broader historical analysis um, that takes into consideration the international in, and inter-imperial stakes uh, and basically the main question of war and peace in Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, well, thank you. Um, I, I'm really you know, glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, and I'll just mention again for our listeners what this book is about. It is um, called Conquering Peace, from the Enlightenment to the European Union, the author is Stella Gervas, and it is published by Harvard University Press this spring in 2021, um, coming out in a lot of countries in, in April and May. I want to congratulate you, Stella, on um, this book and you know, really look forward to reading your, your next work on the Black Sea. Thank you for joining <laughs> me today. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you very much for a wonderful interview and for your great questions. And I'm your host here at New Books in Eastern European Studies and New Books in European Studies, Stephen Siegel. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Okay.